0: Okay, let's start. Uh, We're talking about superposition. And I'm going to have to try to guess where we left off last time. Somewhere. We did that, we did that, and we did not do that. So we talked about superposition, and that led to interference. And so I wanted to do an example of a situation where you have interference and you can use the interference pattern to tell you something physically significant. So here's an example of a uh, pretty simple experiment. There's a beam splitter here and some light source that reflects off of this beam splitter and comes down. You don't necessarily need that beam splitter. You could just have like sunlight or an overhead light shining down on a pair of microscope slides, and the idea is to use these slides to figure out how thick, something that's dif- normally difficult to measure because it's so thin, uh, how thick that is, with very good precision. So maybe a human hair or you know, pencil lead or something thin. And if it's um, positioned at one end of the slides so it forms a wedge like that, you can determine its thickness by observing the interference pattern formed um, when you view these slides by the light that reflects off of the back surface of the top slide and the top surface of the bottom slide. So let me draw this on the board. Since these are just ordinary pieces of glass, there's some spacer here that has a thickness, I'll call it uh, And that's what we want to measure. So there's light, ordinary light, means means incoherent light, illuminating this from above. And I said that the light that reflects off of the bottom surface of the top slide and the top surface of the bottom slide would produce interference. Why would there not be interference, for example, from the light that reflects off of the top slot of the slide or the bottom of the bottom slide? Or am I just ignoring those because they're not the, uh, they don't contribute to measurements of this wedge? Uh, well, they would vary if you looked at like the interference of the light reflecting from the top surface here and the bottom surface there. Right, they're gonna, their, their separation is increasing. And so their phase difference is going to increase. And depending on where you are, you're either going to see bright or dark or somewhere in between uh, due to the interference of those two beams. But th- those beams don't interfere. Why not? What kind of light did I say we were using here? Incoherent Incoherent light. So incoherent means the beams that have a physical path length separation that's large, larger than the coherence length, won't produce constructive interference or won't produce observable interference. And so that path length, for light that reflects here versus light that goes down and reflects there, is going to be several millimeters. So assume the slides are... Couple millimeters thick, and the coherence length for sunlight or white light like this uh, from the fluorescent lamps is on the order of maybe a micron, a few microns, ten microns probably. Gregory, coherence length, coherence length is the distance over which a wave train is coherent. So, here's. The sinusoidal oscillation has a certain frequency, but at some point in time, the phase has some discontinuity. Think of it that way. And in practice, what that means is if you split a beam and then you recombine it, and the two paths vary by more than that coherence length, you're going to be interfering part of the wave that was over here with the part that was over here, and there's no, uh, no phase relationship between them. So you may get constructive interference at one point in time and destructive at another point in time, just due to the fact that the uh, the relative phase difference of those is not constrained by the path length difference between them. OK, so that means we're only going to observe the interference due to these. Reflections. Maybe I should step back and, and ask what would happen if you took an interferometer? This is a Michelson interferometer. We talked about the Mach sender yesterday. But if you have some light source here, and that sends rays into a beam splitter, it splits the rays, they get reflected back, and they come out here. If these two path lengths L1 and L2 are identical then you'll see constructive interference here. If they differ by uh, a quarter wavelength then the round trip path is a half a wavelength difference you'd see destructive interference. So if you moved one mirror and plotted the intensity that you saw here what would you see? And when, you, when we did this example for the Mach-Zender interferometer, which is essentially the same thing, but these mirrors just direct the light to a, a second beam splitter, we said what we see is a sinusoidal oscillation. Or it looks like sine squared. That's what we saw last time. What happens if your light is not coherent? What do you think you would see? Or Let's say the coherence length of the light is small. Let's say it's, the coherence length is maybe 10 microns. It's about 10 wavelengths. Let me plot this. As we move L1 from very, very much shorter to L2, very much greater. Well, if it's very much shorter or very much greater than L2, then the path lengths the light travels are different. More diff- more, uh, their separation is greater than the coherence length. And you don't see interference. You just see the average intensity. Essentially what's happening is the light is interfering. You get constructive or destructive, and it's just um, very rapidly varying. And then what happens when you get to the point where L1 equals L2? You start to see interference. So here you would see. It's cosinusoidal or those sine squared oscillations. And as you get further from that equidistant point, the visibility or the contrast of those fringes would wash out. And you'd end up with just the average intensity. So the light that reflects off the bottom or the top surface is just going to produce some some light reflecting back, just some average intensity light. But that, due to the reflection at these closer surfaces, can interfere and produce some change in the intensity as a function of change in that path length. We're going to deal with coherence more mathematically later. So I'm just trying to provide enough information now Understand this, but later on we'll see a more mathematical treatment. Later on, I think means next. Well, it means next week. Okay, so let's uh, let's say the length of these slides is L. And that would be something that you could easily measure. Then the angle. going to be T over L. We're in the uh, small angle approximation, where the tangent of the angle equals the angle. And that means the, this distance here, I'll call it Y, Depends on how far along the slides or along this wedge you're observing. And the path length difference for the light. Phase difference for the light reflecting off the top and the light reflecting off the bottom is. I'll write it as k times 2y. Okay, so if the height of these, the height of this gap is y, the round trip path is 2y. And to convert a distance into a phase, we multiply by k. So remember, K is two pi over the wavelength. So, when we look down on these, these slides. As a function of x, if I looked at the intensity, what I should see is, first of all, there's some average intensity reflecting back. And that just comes from the top and the bottom surfaces. And in addition to that, there's the interference from the intermediate surfaces. And it's going to vary, that interference term, It's going to look like cosine squared of phi. Okay, so we can, we can see that by considering two waves, one that reflects off of the top surface. And I'll call that E0 times the reflection coefficient of the top surface. And one that reflects off of the bottom surface Let's assume they both have the same reflectivity and has traveled some additional phase, some additional length that gives rise to an additional phase of phi. When I add those up, I can factor out the E naughts, I can factor out. a factor of i phi over 2 so that i can write i can write this first term as e to the plus i phi over 2 times e to the minus i phi over 2 i can write the second term as e to the i phi over 2 times e to the i phi over 2 This term in parentheses, and I've added up these two waves, looks like cosine, cosine of phi over 2. That's the total electric field that I see when I combine the two fields that reflect from those two surfaces. The irradiance that they produce is proportional to the f- absolute value of the field squared, and so there's going to be a term that looks like um, cosine squared of phi over two times some constant that describes how how intense those interference fringes are but this shows how they vary as a function of phi. Phi is related to the position. Phi is related to the position along this wedge And so if I plot the irradiance that I see as a function of the position, it's going to have this variation. No, lambda is the wavelength, and we use the wavelength here because this phase, this is the round-trip phase for the light going from the top surface down and back. And so that phase is, every time the light travels one wavelength, the phase increases by 2 pi. So the distance it traveled was 2y. We can write that in terms of the number of wavelengths it traveled is 2y over lambda. That has nothing to do with the coherence length. That's the number of wavelengths. And we multiply it by 2 pi to get a phase. So what we can do is count the number of fringes that we see. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. These would appear as bright lines. These would appear as dark lines on our slide, Gregory. It is. This dotted is it. Line. No, no, I mean should be the line? Yeah, it should. Let me just draw the dotted line down here. That's the average irradiance and due to the top and bottom surfaces. And these surfaces add an additional irradiance that goes as cosine squared, so it's always positive. So it looks like that. And I can count the number of bright lines, or alternatively the number of dark lines I see. It tells me how many, say how many fringes are there, and each fringe corresponds to this quantity going through one cycle. So if I count n fringes, then I can say that. pi over 2 is equal to n times pi. This function is periodic in pi, not 2 pi. Cosine squared reproduces itself every pi radians. So it's reproduced itself every pi, Every time pi over 2 varies by pi, the system reproduces itself or the the function reproduces itself. It's reproduced itself n times to get n fringes. So phi, I've written in terms of um, the position. So if it reproduces itself n times over a distance l, I'll plug in x equals l. the L's cancel, the thickness, the pi's cancel as well, the thickness becomes n over 4 lambda. So here, all we have to do is count the number of dark bands we see when looking down on these slides, multiply that by the wavelength of light. So choose a wavelength in the center of the visible spectrum, 500 nanometers, and divide by 4. And that tells us the thickness of the object that we put in. Did we lose it? I don't. Phi over 2. Phi over 2. And then, oh, did I lose a factor of 2? I plugged in the value of phi, not phi over 2. How's that? Okay, so that's an example of using this interference effect to make a useful measurement. It's a lot easier to count some number of fringes than it is to uh, maybe accurately measure that thickness directly. By the way, what would your uncertainty be in this measurement as I've described it? If n is a number of fringes, right? it's an integer. There might not be an exact integer number of cycles. Right? So n could be plus or minus 1 half. So our uncertainty would be is that plus or minus a quarter wavelength. So you can measure the thickness to plus or minus a quarter wavelength. You could do much better if you took a photograph and plotted this and measured not just an integer number, but, but fit, a, fit a cosine squared to this and determine the, uh, the actual number of cycles to some number of decimal points. But even without doing that, we can measure to a fraction of a wavelength of thickness using nothing but our eye. OK, so we're going to come back to uh, measurements of quantities using interference when we talk about interferometers, which is chapter 7. Um, right now, we're going to do more about uh, phase velocity and group velocity. We sort of introduced those last time by looking at some little graphs or some little uh, slides. We'll do that again. Um, So I'll remind you that phase velocity is, up until this point, what we've thought of as the speed of light. And in the wave equation, if you plug in a monochromatic wave, if you plug in a solution that looks like cosine kx minus omega t, the phase velocity is just omega over k. And that relationship is necessary to satisfy the wave equation but if you have some waveform not just a sinusoidal wave but a wave that has some shape to it then you can describe that as being made up of different frequency components and if the different frequency components travel at different rates how do you talk about the velocity of their waveform and for that we need the concept of group velocity okay so For the moment, ignore the bottom half of this. There's a lot going on. Maybe I can. Um, Let's look at this plot over here. We have a red wave and a blue wave. The red wave has a longer wavelength than the blue, just like red light has a longer wavelength than blue light. And if I add up these two sinusoidal waves, I get this interference that at some points is destructive and at other points is constructive. So I could call this my waveform. It's a wave that has some shape to it. Yeah mm-hmm. yeah, I haven't done that here so. They add up destructively here, constructively there. they were different amplitudes, they would never completely cancel out. And because these are both moving at the same phase velocity, then when I add them up, the waveform moves at the same, fam- same velocity as well. Okay, so we would say that these waves are traveling in a material that doesn't have any dispersion. Dispersion is when the phase velocity is different for different wavelengths. And we don't have that here. OK, so let's consider what happens in a material with dispersion. First of all, ignore the purple for the moment. We've got this red wave traveling to the right, the blue wave traveling to the right. And if you look carefully, you can see they're moving at different speeds. So let me track the peak of the two waves. You can see the red one is going faster. Can you see that? So if we follow the waveform, the point where they'll interfere destructively changes as these, phase, these waves shift out of phase. So let's follow, if you want, you can follow this point of destructive interference. And it's moving to the right, but not at the same speed that the individual components are. Okay, so the shape of this waveform down below is moving at a different rate. Than either of the two component waves. So you can sort of see that the the phase, these phase fronts, are moving faster than the envelope. So there seem to be waves created over here that travel across this uh, waveform and then sort of get sucked up into this little region over here of destructive interference. So we're going to describe the phase velocity as the velocity of each individual component and the group velocity as the velocity at which this, the envelope of their sum travels at. So you can think of it as the velocity of this uh, nodal point here, of destructive interference, how fast that was going across. So remember last time I... showed this slide, or a slide like this, where I had these two different uh, diagrams that represented waves. So these were contour plots that had 12 and 15, respectively, bright and dark bands across them. And the top one's transparent, so when I overlay them, we see something like an interference pattern. And when I move that top band to the right, that interference pattern also moves, in this case to the right, but it seems to be moving much faster than the rate at which my mouse is moving. Can you see that? That's when I drag the k equals 15 band to the right relative to the k equals 12 band. What do you think would happen if I dragged the k equals 12 band, to the right, the k equals 15. Move to the left. Let's see. See the interference pattern now moving to the left. Now in reality, if you have two different frequencies of waves, one of them is not standing still while the other one moves. We can think of it as we're observing these things in the reference frame of a moving wave. Einstein would have some complaints about that, but we'll ignore that for the moment. Let's ask, what relationship do you need for the dispersion, the change in index of refraction as a function of frequency, in order to have the group velocity greater than the phase velocity? Yeah. So in this class we assume the existence of we're not assuming anything here. We're just Taking a little picture that's very classical, and trying to apply it to, to something that's not. That's all. So dispersion is usually given by d n d k. You see it is as d n d lambda, which would have the opposite sign, but say d n d k. Um, for this, k equals 15 the value of k is higher than for the k equals 12. If I move this top strip to the right, is its velocity its velocity is greater than the k equals 12. So if we wanted to talk about the effective index of refraction for the material it's moving in, would the index of refraction be greater for the k equals 15 or the k equals 12? Yeah, k equals 12. I'm assuming that everything's moving to the right and the k equals 15 is moving faster. It's moving at a higher phase velocity, so smaller index of refraction. So, what is the sign of dNdK for this top diagram when I move? If we assume they're both moving to the right and the k equals 15 strip is moving faster. Anyone have any different opinions? Either positive or negative. So, <laughs> two choices. The higher k is moving faster, meaning it would have a lower, see a lower index. So, when k increases, n goes down. So, d n d k would be negative for this top graph. For the bottom graph. DNDK would be positive for the bottom situation. If these represent two waves moving to the right with the K equals 12 going faster, then the lower wavelength sees a lower index of refraction. DNDK would be positive. So apparently, if dNdk is negative, that's the case I have right here, the group velocity is going faster than or less than the phase velocity? Faster. Yeah. So the phase velocity is the rate at which I'm dragging this top strip, and the group velocity is the rate at which that pattern seems to move, seems to move faster. And likewise down here, we see that pattern moving to the left when I move to the right. So if we imagine both these things are moving to the right, k equals 12 is moving faster, the pattern seems to be going backwards. It just means it's going slower. The group velocity is going slower than the phase velocity. Which of these two situations more closely represents real materials, what happens in real life? Any thoughts? This one, yeah, yeah. So what happens is, if both, if the phase velocity of both of these things is near the speed of light, and you have this situation, then the the group seems to move fast, could move faster than the speed of light. Because in this situation, it doesn't. There are situations where you can get a wave packet to move faster than the speed of light. Turns out you can't transmit any information that way, but we'll see in a moment. You can also create situations where things go much slower. Okay, So group velocity is different than the phase velocity when there's dispersion, when different wavelengths travel at different speeds, when the index of refraction is not constant as a function of wavelength. So another useful analogy, maybe almost appropriate given the timing, but is comes from the world of cycling. How many people have seen the Velodrome cycling? Maybe every four years you tune on the TV during the Summer Olympics, you might see this. These teams of four compete. They race around the track and they have to race as a team. I think I don't know exactly how it works, but like their time is determined by when the last member finishes, something like that. So as they race around the track, um, the guy in front gets tired because he's cutting the wind for everyone else. And so periodically, the person in front will move to the side, let everyone else pass him, and then he joins the group at the back. Then they race on, and after a little while, the new leader moves aside, drifts to the back. So what happens is if you ask how fast the riders are moving at any moment in time. Each individual rider would have some speed, but the whole group is actually moving slower than that because the leader keeps drifting back. Right? So the rate at which the pack moves is different than the w- rate at which an individual rider moves. And that's sort of an analogy with what happens when you have different frequency components of light. OK, so the phase velocity we said we just find from omega over k. And that represents the rate at which the phase front of a wave is moving. The rate at which the envelope of the wave front is moving, rate at which the waveform moves, is d omega dk. There's different ways to express that. Omega is related to k by the phase velocity. The phase velocity is c over n. And so you can write omega is ck over n. And n depends on wavelength. The index of refraction in a dispersive media will depend on wavelength. So you can plug this expression for omega into here and take the derivative. See, I have time to do that. I will do that. So if we say the group velocity is d omega over k dk, and we say omega is ck over n of k, then we can write and write this like this. The c is a constant. We'll move that outside of the derivative. And we'll use the chain rule to evaluate the product of these two functions which depend on k. So we have the first times the derivative of the second. And so we have minus 1 over n squared plus the second times the derivative of the first. The second function is one over n of k. The derivative of k with respect to k is just one. C over n, yeah, I'm just trying to figure out what form I'm trying to get this into to match the slide. So I'll pull out an n and write c over n as the phase velocity. Now I have a relationship between the group velocity and the phase velocity that depends on the dispersion of the material the light's propagating in. So in a vacuum, phase velocity and group velocity are always the same because n by definition is 1 in a vacuum, regardless of wavelength. In normal materials, dN dK is, well, this term, k over N times dN dK, is a small, a small correction relative to 1. But in certain materials that are carefully prepared, that can be very large and can become comparable to 1. Okay, so this tends to occur where you have absorption. If you look at the... Uh, index of refraction near an absorption line in a material that has, um, has some quantum transition that corresponds to a wavelength at this frequency, then that material can absorb light of that frequency and get pumped into a higher state. In the process, you get absorption around that frequency. This is the real part of the index of refraction. This is the imaginary part. And so, normally, the index of refraction is that frequency increases, the index increases. That's called normal dispersion. Increasing frequency gives rise to increasing index. And that's what we have over here to the left of this absorption line, and over here to the right of that absorption line. But in the center, you can see the index is decreasing as a function of frequency. It's called anomalous dispersion. You only have that when you're at frequencies that are absorbed in the material. So you don't have it in things that are transparent. So the things we normally use as optics don't have a negative dnd omega. They have a positive dnd omega or dndk. So as a result, we call positive dnd omega or dndk normal dispersion and negative dnd omega we call anomalous dispersion okay so you can use the fact that there's this strong dispersion the index of refraction is changing very rapidly as a function of frequency around an atomic transition to produce group velocities that are very different than phase velocities. And I think the most famous example of this being done was at Harvard by uh, Leanne Howe. And about I guess eight years, nine years ago, this used to be a recent issue, a recent thing, but it's quickly becoming dated. She was able to slow light to 35 miles per hour. She was able to slow the group velocity of light to 35 miles per hour by sending it through a sample that was absorbing, essentially, and had a very, very strong anomalous dispersion. So Since then, she's demonstrated stopping light, stopping in the sense that it uh, you can think of it as a zero group velocity. In practice, what happens is the light gets absorbed. And then she's able to uh, reproduce that light. When the uh, quantum state decays back to its original state, it gives off a photon with the same quantum state that the incident photon had. So essentially stopping light in its tracks and then starting it up again. So some neat stuff. Um, I'm going to skip this example and suggest we have a short break. We can break for a couple minutes, two minutes, let's say, and we'll start back up and we're going to introduce the Fourier transform. Thank <laughs> you. I know How many people have started Fourier transforms or have seen this in other classes so far? Okay. Has, are you doing them right now in other classes or have you seen them in the past? Let's get started up. I'm actually just trying to get through these slides, but it seems to be taking a long time to load each one. I don't know if these are. Marks on the What's that? Why does she have to take marks on the glasses? To it's his hair. <laughs> Bill Amond, who writes this, uh, has a physics degree. <laughs> so there's lots of good stuff in here. OK, so the difference between group velocity and phase velocity is only relevant when there's dispersion. It's only relevant when you have a waveform that's made up of different frequency components. There's only one frequency component. If you just have a sinusoidal wave, it's just going to travel at whatever its phase velocity is, and its waveform is, is, is constant. OK, so let's consider what we have when we have some waveform, some shape to the interference pattern that's that's a a function of space or time. If you have a number of monochromatic waves of different frequencies, you can add them up to produce interference, and you can generate any arbitrary shaped function from the interference of plane waves, if you have enough of them. Um, What that says is, Any function of time, and that could represent the waveform, how it's varying in time, can be described as the infinite sum of plane waves. This E times, this amplitude times a phasor, this is a phasor. An amplitude times a phase angle is our definition of a plane wave in complex notation. And what this is saying is, we have an infinite number of them that are adding up. And the amplitude of each frequency can be different. So the amplitude of the phasor is a function of frequency. We could also say that the phase is a function of frequency, but since we're integrating from negative infinity to positive infinity we'll see later on that you can combine a wave with a negative frequency and a wave with a positive frequency and get them to produce um, an arbitrary phase. You can represent the sum of a negative and positive frequency wave as a positive frequency wave with a phase shift. So instead of including a phase shift here, we're including the possibility that there's negative frequency waves as well. Just a mathematical alternative definition. So this function here, e of omega, is called the Fourier transform of e of t. So let's talk a little bit about what that means. And If it's a review, that's a great thing. So vectors are useful things that we use a lot in physics. They're mathematical constructs. And a vector can be described by an amplitude and a direction, but It's also often more convenient to describe them in terms of their x and y components. So we have a basis set, which we can project that vector onto, an orthogonal basis set. And the Cartesian coordinates are an orthogonal basis set. An x-directed vector is orthogonal to a y-directed vector in that that the dot product is 0. Or there's no number of x components you can add up to produce something in the y direction. And you can't add up y components to produce something in the x direction. So they're orthogonal. Now, any arbitrary vector can be described in terms of its x and y components. That's not the only basis set. You could have (laughs) uh, polar coordinates, for example, that describe these vectors. But x and y is one convenient choice of basis sets. Well, functions are exactly the same way. Any arbitrary function can be described in terms of a basis set of orthogonal functions. And sinusoidal functions happen to be one such set of orthogonal functions. So vectors are orthogonal if their dot product is zero. And if we choose a basis set, we usually talk about unit vectors such that each component of our basis set has a magnitude of 1. Okay. Same thing with functions that form the basis set for Fourier transforms. Um, if we can describe any function in terms of an orthogonal basis set, that orthogonal basis set has to satisfy To satisfy the orthogonality condition. Okay. Sines and cosines are an example of functions which satisfy that condition. If you multiply a sine by a cosine, what you get is, looks like sine of, I don't know if we can do that, sine of t times cosine of t equals 1 half sine of 2t. And if we integrate that over all time, this is an oscillating function. If you add it up, you have equal equal times when it's positive, equal times when it's negative, and it integrates to 0. sine of t times sine of t is sine squared. That's always positive. When you average over a full cycle or many cycles, you get one half. So you can normalize it such that it equals one, and then you have a basis for decomposing a function into various sinusoidal components. So this... This black function can be thought of as a number of functions that add up constructively. A number of sinusoidal functions that are all in phase when the function's at its peak. And when it's over here, they're going to add up out of phase and cancel out. And we need an infinite number of different frequency components in order to get this particular function. Gregory? Since the sine function is periodic, means that any addition of any sine functions, the result must be periodic as well. That's true. And the periodicity uh, comes from the difference in the frequency of the sine functions. So if the difference in the frequency is infinitesimally small, then the periodicity becomes infinitely large. Yep, you can. So we're not going to go through the full derivation of the Fourier series and then generalize that to the Fourier transform in this class. But we will walk through the steps of how you relate an arbitrary function to its Fourier transform using the notation that we're going to use, which is the complex notation, so the phasor notation. So this is a phasor at frequency omega. And we're going to say we don't know anything about the amplitude of the different frequency components of this function. But if we know what this function is, we can back out what the amplitude of each frequency component has to be. So first step is we're going to multiply both sides by e to the minus i omega prime t. So we put that on both sides and then we integrate over all time, both sides over all time. So on the left, we have this expression. On the right, we have our original expression times e to the i omega prime t integrated over all time. Since we're doing the same operations to both sides of an equation, uh, we should retain the equality. Now we can take this term here and bring it over inside the integral of omega. This term is independent of omega. It has an omega prime, but that's a different quantity than omega. So we can bring it inside the integral. It's a constant in terms of this integral. And then we can combine the exponents. And that's what we've done right here. So now we have an integral over omega and time of some amplitude that varies as a function of omega in a phase, which depends on omega and omega prime. On the, right side we ha- on the left side, we haven't done anything. Okay, So if we're going to integrate this right side, let's integrate it first with respect to time. This term here is independent of time. It's the amplitude of the phasor at frequency omega. And that's time independent. So we can bring that outside, the first integral. And we're just integrating e to the i omega minus omega prime with respect to t. So this is an oscillating function in time. If you integrate an oscillating function that goes between positive and negative over all time, what do you get? Zero. So this is an oscillating function, unless what condition makes this not oscillating? If omega and omega prime are the same value, then what's the value of this function? It's just one. And then you're integrating one over all times so you get infinity. Okay, so the integral of this quantity is a delta function. It's a delta function of omega minus omega prime. If they're not equal, it will integrate to zero. If they are equal, it will integrate to infinity. So that integral is a delta function. Which we now factor out. And we're left with the remaining, what was the outer integral. So we've integrated this with respect to t. That became the delta function. And we're left with the integral of our phasor amplitude over all possible frequencies. We don't know anything about. The phasor amplitudes as a function of frequency right now. All we know about is, all we're assuming that we know about is the time dependence of our function that's represented by an infinite number of phasors. So we don't know how to do this integral. Doesn't really matter. We don't need to know how to do it because the only frequency that's relevant is when omega equals omega prime. If that's not the case, If this omega is anything other than omega prime, whatever this integral comes out to be gets multiplied by 0. So we only need to consider the case where omega equals omega prime. And so when we integrate this over all possible frequencies, the only frequency that contributes is omega prime. And so we get the amplitude of the phasor at omega prime. We're summing up the phasor amplitudes of all frequencies. The only one that contributes, or the only one that doesn't go to zero, is the one at omega prime. So that's what comes out. And this tells us, this is now an expression for the phasor amplitude at some frequency omega prime as a function of our waveform multiplied by e to the minus i omega prime t and integrated. So we can write this as a definition for the value of the amplitude of our phasor component in terms of our function. So We know the form of the function, the waveform. We can plug it in here. We can do this integral. And the value of this integral will depend on what omega. I've changed notation. Changed omega prime to omega over here, which doesn't change this relationship. But it allows me to express this back in terms of the original quantity that I was looking for. So we get a definition. The value of this integral will depend on what omega is. And so it will be a function of omega. And that function is the Fourier transform of E of t. So we'll apply some physical interpretation to that. And if we call that not the Fourier transform, but if we call it the spectral density, then it has more physical meaning. So if you think about what, say, a sinusoidal wave looks like as a function of time, its Fourier transform is just a delta function. If you have a sine wave, you only have one frequency component. So a plot of what the Fourier transform looks like as a function of frequency, there's only one frequency component that contributes. All other frequency components are 0. And so we can call this the spectral density of the electric field. As a function of frequency, that means in terms of the spectrum, different frequencies are different wavelengths, different colors of light. So this is like a plot on the spectrum. How much electric field are there in the different regions of the spectrum? There's only an electric field in this one narrow region of the spectrum, which is to say it's monochromatic, say it's a sinusoidal plane wave. We can understand that a little bit too by looking at the units. The electric field has units of volts per meter. And if we plug in something with volts per meter here, this is just a number. Dt is a unit of time. That's so going to be units of seconds. And so our spectral density is going to be volts per meter times seconds. Volts per meter times seconds. We can write seconds as 1 over hertz. And then this becomes volts per meter, the electric field, per unit frequency. So at different frequencies, we're going to get different amounts of electric field. Now, if you, if you were to measure this waveform over an infinitely long period of time, then you could, describe, um, you could describe it as being composed of a number of frequencies that are stationary in time. Now, if you, have, if you have a sinusoidal wave or if you have a light coming out of a laser and its frequency is drifting in time, you can think of that as a sinusoidal wave whose wavelength is changing in time. You can think of it as a a spectrum where the output plotted on that spectrum is moving around in time. But that's assuming that you're observing the frequency variations over some, you're averaging over some length of time, determining what that frequency is and then you're taking a moving average. If you average over all time Then you get a single stationary frequency. Okay, so let's look at the spectral density for a few different uh, simple cases. So, sinusoidal variation in time corresponds to a delta function in frequency. We can think of this another way. If you have a single frequency laser, what will its output look like as a function of time? It will be an oscillation, a sinusoidal oscillation. What if you have two frequency components? Well, we've already done that several times where we've taken two different frequency sine waves and we've added them up and we see this interference pattern. So two different frequency components give rise to this interference pattern. So we could say that this waveform has this spectral density. This waveform is periodic. We saw that before. It uh, keeps increasing, decreasing, increasing. What if you had sort of like a laser pulse, where the electric field oscillations build up and then decay, but they're not repetitive? Well, there's some sort of average frequency at which the spectral density is centered around. And instead of having discrete frequencies, we have a continuum of frequencies. And so Gregory asked if you have um, discrete frequencies, or relating this to what Gregory asked, if you have discrete frequencies, then the frequency difference between them corresponds to the frequency at which this pattern repeats. So the frequency difference here is the beat frequency of the two waves. and so every, you know, at a time interval corresponding to one over that beat frequency, this pattern is going to, to repeat. The frequency difference between the frequency components here is zero, because it's a continuum. So the beat frequency is infinite. The beat frequency is zero. The repetition time is infinite, so this pulse never repeats. So when you go from a series of discrete spikes to a continuum, you go from a repetitive waveform to one that doesn't repeat in time. If these frequencies got closer and closer together, the repetition time would be getting further and further apart. And once they become infinitesimally close together, then the repetition time becomes infinitely far apart. If we think of these lines as rep- representing the amplitude of phasers of different frequencies, then adding up two phasers of different frequencies gives us this waveform, but phasers also have a phase, they have an amplitude and a phase. If we represent two phasers that have the same amplitude that we had up here and the same frequencies, but one is 90 degrees out of phase with respect to the other. so. This is the frequency axis, the plane that's transverse to that. We let that represent the complex plane in which we plot the phasor. Then these two phasors are 90 degrees out of phase. If you look down this axis, we see one that's pointing up and one that's pointing sideways. So it's like adding, this is like adding two cosines, this is like adding a cosine and a sine. And the result is you get the same type of interference pattern, but the phase is shifted by 90 degrees. With respect to what you had there, so that gives us. This is just showing the pictorial relationship between the waveforms and the spectral densities that describe them, and this is important in optics because a lot of times you'll have a waveform that's propagating in a dispersive medium. So you have a. Let's say you have a short pulse. A short pulse means a waveform that's narrow in time. So here is a pulse. Say that's a a laser pulse that's a few periods long, a few optical periods long. Then it's going to have some spectral width to it. That means there's going to be different frequency components propagating through material. The material is dispersive; they're going to propagate at different speeds. And you might want to know what does this pulse look like when it gets through a block of glass, or when it gets through a lens, and what you typically find is that if you take an ultra-short pulse and send it through a lens, you don't get an ultra-short pulse out. Say the higher frequency components are moving faster through the lens than the lower frequency components, you essentially get the bluer light out first, the redder light out later, and your pulse gets spread. And it gets what's called a chirp. The frequency is changing as a function of time. Just like a bird chirping. Okay, so that can be a problem if you're trying to u- use short pulses in an optical system. So if you want to understand how pulses propagate through an optical system, or through any dispersive material, you can take your initial waveform, take the Fourier transform, you get the spectral density. That tells you how much field you have at each frequency. You can then propagate that through your material. If you know the index of refraction is a function of frequency, you can write the output phasors in terms of the input phasors. And that gives you the final spectral density. So each frequency component gets shifted by an amount that depends on the index of refraction of the material and the path length. That final spectral density. Say this, this was your light that you sent through a dispersive material. If these two frequencies propagate at different rates, then one is going to get delayed relative to the other. And you may end up with a situation that looks like this. Think of these as both oscillating around in time, and one is delayed relative to the other. We're going to end up with a situation like this, and the waveform seems to have drifted. So you can take that final spectral density, do an inverse Fourier transform, and observe what that final waveform looks like. Okay, so that's motivation for why this is important. Um, we'll typically see not the, not the uh, spectral dens- density of the electric field, but we'll talk about the power spectrum a little bit more frequently. So the power spectrum is proportional to that spectral density squared, because power or irradiance is proportional to electric field squared. Since we measure power, not field, if you measure the power of light at different frequencies, you can plot that. So here's a 3,400 Kelvin black body. And as a function of wavelength, this is how much power is in the the light the radiation emitted from that black body. At lower wavelength, or longer wavelengths, lower frequencies, there's more radiation emitted. So this is a power spectrum. It's a plot of the power at different frequencies or at different wavelengths, which is really just related to the Fourier transform. We don't necessarily think of it that way, um, but that's what it is. If we compare that to the power spectrum of a laser, a laser, one of the things that characterizes lasers is their narrow, um, their narrow power spectra. So their output is confined to nearly a monochromatic wave at a particular frequency or a particular wavelength. So you see much more of a delta function appearance in the power spectrum. OK, so that's where we'll, we'll end today. Um, we'll talk more about interference and interferometers next week.